Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 14, I'm going to take a break from this um, passage starting next week for I'm not sure how long. Um, I try to keep politics out of Sunday mornings, not simply because I find that they are offensive, not because I'm uneducated and unaware about them, not because I'm worried what you'll think about my positions, but generally speaking, my primary concern is teaching you the Word of God, and if I equip you with the Word of God, then you should be able to make your own decisions about how to vote and to do things and what's going on in current events. That said, I believe we are at an unprecedented time in the course of our nation, and so I have been released from the Holy Spirit to speak on current events and subject matter that might seem more political than um, I normally, certainly than I normally get, um, starting next week. Um, so we're going to take a pause on Ephesians, and for a few weeks, as many as the Lord leads, and work through some of the things that are going on that we see in our nation. So, um, that said, I need to get through verse 14 today. We can do a whole verse. So, we're going to get to a nice <laughs> stopping point, put a bow on it, and we will revisit 15 um, sometime in October and or potentially November. But Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now last week I shared on the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that he is our distinguishing mark. We see that in verse 13. Today I want to pick up primarily in 14 and speak of what God says where he gave himself, his spirit, as a pledge of our inheritance. Now, many modern translations, I do not believe, do this phrase 
justice. The NIV, the ESV, the NLT, etc. say something to the effect of the Holy Spirit guarantees our salvation. Well, last week I made reference to my position on, or, or not teaching on eternal security and saving that for another time. I was subsequently approached after service um, about this discussion, so I will oblige at least that one individual, but perhaps you two have been curious. I know I sort of left you hanging with that, but we're going to go there today, and that's what inadvertently makes this a little bit longer than um, may have been the trend of the last couple weeks. But now the reason I do not believe that guarantee is a good translation of the word is a bit complicated. Firstly, the Greek word itself is only used on two other occasions in the New Testament. First, I'm sorry, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 1, 22 and 2 Corinthians 5, 5 are the only other times that we will see this Greek word. It says, God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, that word pledge. Secondly, God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So we don't really glean anything extra from the context of these two other um, verses, if you will. Secondly, and more importantly, this word pledge or earnest or down payment or deposit or guarantee, whatever your translation actually has, really is a Hebrew word that is transliterated into the Greek alphabet and then translated into our English alphabet. So Paul here is not using a Greek word. He's actually speaking a Hebrew word when he wrote the epistle of Ephesians. And so I think it's really uh, important for us to actually consider and go back to the root meaning in the Hebrew. The problem with that is it's only used four times in the entire Old Testament. So we don't have a whole lot of times this is used. Seven times in the entire Word of God, this word is used. Now, three of these four times that it's written in Hebrew are all found in Genesis chapter 38. And that is a wild ride about a daughter-in-law in death and goats in harlot tree. Did that pique your interest? You can read about that on your own. Was that a good pitch? Death and goats and harlotry all mixed in one? Yeah, you can read about that. There was a pledge of somebody who should not have been sleeping with somebody and gave garments and a staff. Long story short, this was a pledge that they were going to, this lady was going to eventually get a goat in return. So why does this translation of the word matter at all? Well, it goes back to and is related to my understanding and position on eternal security, or as many refer to it, once saved, always saved, or for any Calvinist subscribers, perseverance of the saints. Yes, this is a long debated um, topic going back more than 500 plus years. Now, many of you may not agree with my view on this, and that is okay. I want you to know that with everything I teach as the Lord gave it to me, and I often revisit this topic, and I am seeking a more clear answer to how to respond to this age-old question. Now, I may not be particularly articulate in this matter, and that's because I have no problem admitting that it is not as black and white as some make it seem. Some say, oh, well, you've got to be on this side or you're not going to heaven, or you've got to be on this side or you're not going to heaven. 
But before I go any further, I want you to understand that this is not a church tenet. It's not necessarily a salvific belief. In fact, I am fairly um, certain that the three elders of this church don't even exactly hold the same view on this as me. So know that it is okay to disagree on this particular matter, and in this case, it's okay to ask this question. So on one hand, why this debate is really not a big issue and why I was going to push it off for another time. Because the undeniable truth is this. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you are saved. Period. But what the seekers of this question really want to answer is more precisely along these lines. At what point are you actually saved? And you can see how with simply flipping the question, things can get deep really quick, don't they? The thing is, the Bible is filled with verses that can be used to support both sides of the debate. And I think the issue lies with how to interpret or rather how many misinterpret the other verses that they do not seem to fit their narrative or agenda. Let me give some examples. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. John 10, 28. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Seems clear, right? Nothing can take away your salvation. Nobody can get in the way. Nobody's snatching you out of your salvation. Nobody's taking you from the Lord. But hang on. What about these verses? Matthew 24, 13. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 2. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you will have believed in vain. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith. So let me just recap these verses. Jesus will not cast out believers, and additionally, no one can snatch us out of the Lord's hand, but only those who stand firm to the end will have salvation if they continue in their faith. And it's at this point that many begin to appeal to logic and reason. We say, okay, well, here's the verses that represent my side of things. Just use your brain. How can you be unjustified if you've already been justified? How can a new creation become an old creation again? How can someone that has passed from death into life go back into death again? But I want us to keep in mind, and as we look at the entirety of Scripture on salvation and how best to reconcile these very few cherry-picked verses, that it's helpful to remember salvation is sort of a three-step process. There's justification, there's sanctification, and then there's glorification. So when does salvation actually take place? Well, some would say when you believe in Jesus. That's the moment of belief. Others would say, well, you're saved at the moment of Jesus' resurrection because your sins were nailed to the cross, past, present, and future. Still others would say, well, we were saved before the foundations of the world. Clearly, the Bible says that. Well, others say, well, God, we are looking forward to this day when we will be saved. 
But in all of this, we need to remember that God is outside of time, and His kingdom is not of this world. And so, while it might be nice for us to be able to try and separate salvation into these three neat little categories and put them as past, ongoing, and future, that is not always the most biblically accurate thing to do. Take glorification, for example. Glorification refers to, as many call it, the future salvation or glorification of our body is how we speak of it, a future event that will happen one day when our salvation is fully realized. The Bible says, these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified. Notice which tense we're in, past. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So glorification is actually an already completed act and something that will happen in the future. The same can be made the case about sanctification. We can talk about being new and washed, pure and holy as a past tense already taken place action because of Jesus' work on the cross. But we must also not neglect that it is an ongoing work. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Redemption is threefold. Hebrews 9, 12 and 15, it's past tense, at Christ's death. It's present in the sense that we currently have our redemption, Ephesians 1, 7. And it's a future deliverance, Romans 8, 23. You can even see this with salvation as a whole. Ephesians 2, 5 says, even though when we were dead in our trespasses or transgressions, we were made alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Past tense. It is something that has been done to us, but there's this ongoing facet as indicated in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Although you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Salvation is something that we are ongoing obtaining. Thirdly, there's this future element to salvation. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5, 9 through 10. So the answer to the evangelical question, are you saved, should accurately be answered in this way. I have been saved. I am being saved, and I will be saved. And that same logic can apply to the other Christianese words pertaining to salvation. When were you justified? Well, I was justified. I am being justified. I will be justified. I was forgiven. I, will, I am being forgiven, and I will be forgiven. I was sanctified. I was justified. I was glorified. I will be. I will be. I will be. I believe this is in part... This is rather in part of the confusion of why people interpret some verses in favor of eternal security, of a past action of salvation, yet others say that there are present conditions to it. That is, I believe that the matter of past, present, and future plays into the confusion of the misinterpretation of Scripture and whether or not salvation has already happened to me or will happen to me. Now, pastor, you've only muddied the water for me. I just want to know whether or not my child is going to go to heaven. But isn't that generally how you hear the question asked? It's never about our personal faith, is it? 
It's always wondering or worrying or wishing or hoping about whether or not someone else is in Christ. Let me tell you something. Our faith is personal. And the only one who can see the heart of the individual is God himself. You know, I can't answer the question whether or not so-and-so is going to heaven because I do not feel comfortable. Now, maybe some pastors do, but I personally do not feel comfortable inserting your son or your daughter's ongoing life into God's eternal outside-of-time book of life. His book of life was written before the foundations of the world. So you want to ask me, humble little me, if I've read it? I don't enjoy sharing difficult news with you, but my primary purpose is not to cheer you up, it's to teach you the truth. Now, I love you to walk away joyful, but if at the expense of your joy, you get fed the whole word of God, great. Now, as this verse pertains to each of us here, what the Bible is clear about salvation and what you need to know about your personal faith, your personal salvation, is that the devil cannot take your salvation away. Secondly, works are evidence of being in Christ. So if you or your son or your daughter isn't producing good fruit, then you or they better examine themselves to see whether or not they are in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. You may say, well, nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? Well, that's true. God loves the whole world that he sent his only begotten son. So do you know that God, while nothing can separate us from the love of God, I want you to also know that God loves even the sinner. So we sort of use this verse as a proof of eternal security, but I don't see it that way. I think that nothing can separate us from the love of God, but God loves all of us. I think what that verse is really, Paul's really trying to say in that verse is that no outside forces, not the devil, not the governor, not your spouse, no false accusation can get between you and your relationship with God the Father. That's what I believe that verse is saying. See, so do I believe in eternal security? Well, in the sense of how people ask the question, do I believe that when you were a four-year-old child at Sunday school or a vacation Bible school, you prayed some little prayer and that's it, you get to do whatever you want in your life and you get to go to heaven at the end of your life? No, I don't believe that. So in that sense of the word, eternal security, the way that people use that, once saved, always saved, if you will, is more fitting for that. I do not believe in that. But I do believe that if there's works and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that nothing will get in the way and be able to take your salvation away from you. So in one sense of the word, theologically, yes, I believe your salvation is secure in Christ. It's secure in God the Father. He's not going to go back and take it back from you. His word is not going to change. He's not going to steal it back but I believe that we have some qualifications to the way we should be living, which prove that we are ongoing, being justified and sanctified and glorified, and in the future will be one day saved. So briefly back to the word in question. Again, I told you not all of you are going to agree with me. Back to the Greek word in question and how we even went down this rabbit hole to begin with. The word guarantee or earnest or deposit 
or pledge or down payment is not necessarily equivalent with guarantee. Now, how many of you have bought a house before, right? You put an earnest or a deposit, a security deposit, a sort of statement of faith that you intend to pay the rest. That this is why I make this subtle distinction into English. So you put an offer on a house, you put an earnest money deposit on that property you desire to show the seller that you're serious about the acquisition of that property, okay? But you can still back out, can't you? Just because you put an earnest on a house does not guarantee you that house. Now it's subtle, but in English there is a difference between guarantee and earnest. So while I don't believe that the translation guaranteeing our inheritance is itself accurate, I do on the other hand believe that it is theologically sound as long as we qualify that those that have already been saved are being saved and will be saved are guaranteed an inheritance. So those that are in Christ, those that have been saved, are being saved and will be saved, have an absolute guaranteed inheritance, but that is not exactly what this phrase says. That said, let's look at exactly what that inheritance is, because this is the importance of verse 14. God says that the Holy Spirit was given as a pledge or an earnest or a down payment or a deposit of our future inheritance. Paul's reminding us that we have an inheritance waiting for us. Now, I want to unpack that most holy truth. The Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Now, listen closely, because here's a deep thought if you're spiritually attuned. God, in giving the Holy Spirit to us, is not simply promising our final inheritance, but is actually providing us with a foretaste of it. Now, this is sort of subtle here, and it would be enough to just have the Holy Spirit as sort of a reminder that one day we're getting heaven. That's great. We've got this reminder telling us there's heaven coming, it's good. But I believe in looking at this particular verse, Ephesians 1.14, God is really trying to get us to realize that the Holy Spirit himself is an actual taste of heaven. He is part of heaven. The Holy Spirit is our down payment of what is sure to come. He's the first installment. He is the divine pledge or promise of what God has prepared for us in heaven. Now, I told you all three weeks ago that we would get into the real prosperity gospel, that we would look more closely at the background to our inheritance. And so I want to give my thoughts on what that is very quickly because we got to go through a bunch of Old Testament scripture in a concise form. Understand that the concept of inheritance began um, with Abraham. In Acts chapter 7, verse 5, Stephen spoke of Abraham's hope of an inheritance, that is, a possession of land that would be given to his descendants after him. We see in Genesis chapter 8, Jacob steals Esau's blessing. You probably remember the account. He got all garbed up in uh, the fur of a goat and made some nice soup. His mom helped him out and pull off this nice um, scam while he, his brother was out hunting. And after his brother found out, he became afraid and he fled to Haran. Now, Haran was way to the north. 
And as he was leaving the area of promise where he grew up and where his father, um, Isaac, had uh, left for him or had raised him, he stopped outside of Bethel. And Bethel, you need to know geographically, this is sort of important, is about 12 miles from Jerusalem to the northwest. And on his way, while he was fleeing to the land of his, his, he was fleeing, catch this, the land of his future inheritance. He was fleeing his inheritance. So he just tricked his brother and received this inheritance. And now he's leaving that place of the inheritance. And he has this dream. Behold, there was a ladder. It was set on the earth with its top reaching into heaven. Do you remember Jacob's ladder? And God speaks to him, says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. So currently where he is in Bethel, I will give it to you and to your descendants, and your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And after Jacob woke up from his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Surely the Lord was in this, is in this place, and I did not know it. He said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, when the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, they anticipated entering into the promised land, which would be their inheritance. And there is, we have a bunch of verses. I've just got three of them here for you. It says, you will bring them out and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, Exodus 15, 17. They shall inherit it forever, Exodus 32, 13. Deuteronomy 4, 38 says, give you their land for an inheritance. So they understood that the promised land was their inheritance. The problem was they believed the land itself was the inheritance but I want you to see something else going on with this. You also need to understand that God made it plain to the Israelites that the inheritance would be for those who trusted in him, and that would include the Gentiles. He says, You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourself and among the aliens who stay in your midst. And in the tribe which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, Ezekiel 47, 22 through 23. So they understood that those that would stay in the area were to receive the inheritance. This was after they were led out of captivity. In other words, the inheritance was meant for all. Anyone, that is, that would choose to stay in the location of promise could partake in the inheritance. Let me say that again. If anyone would choose to stay in the location of promise, they will receive an inheritance. Are you getting this? The location is God's presence. It's not the land itself that was the inheritance, but the land itself is the location of God's dwelling. And right before Jacob was leaving God's presence, if you will, God sets out to give him a reminder and says, this is the place where I dwell. I want you to come back into your inheritance, my very presence. Now, back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. What's the down payment for our inheritance? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which is the very presence of God. He is a foretaste. If anyone chooses to stay in the location of promise, that is God's presence, they will receive an inheritance Jacob came to recognize that the land of his father Isaac was special. It was the place where God met with men, but not everyone would understand this until the Holy Spirit came as a manifest presence of God. 
that is the deposit or down payment of your inheritance. Do you remember at the time of Christ, the place of worship was crucial, it was critical. Do you remember um, we dealt with this topic at, with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, is it? She says, Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say, in other words, you Jews worship in Jerusalem, and that's where you say that's where men ought to worship. And Jesus responded, An hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. What did he say? But an hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Saying, it's not so much the location, but it's the presence of God that allows you to worship. It doesn't have so much to do with this mountain or this city. Jesus was pointing to them. Do you remember, even when Israel sinned, God drove them out of the land of the inheritance. They would eventually return to the land, but after this, the prophets spoke of this eternal inheritance from the land. We have a, a verse in Isaiah 65, 9 that says, And I will bring forth offspring, offspring from Jacob, and an heir of my mountains from Judah, even my chosen ones shall inherit it. So Israel's punishment was much like Adam and Eve's. They were driven out of the presence of God. We've got to understand the bigger picture. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. Part of their punishment was that they were getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden where God's presence was made manifest. God later chooses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bless the nations of the earth and says, I'm going to give you this land and all of your descendants after you. This is the place in where I have chosen to dwell. Jacob leaves. And God gives him the reminder that this is where he dwells. Now back to Jesus John chapter 1, Philip was coming from Bethsaida and they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was there and he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They said, come and see. And Jesus said to him, before Philip called you, or Nathaniel, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And with that, Nathaniel recognized that it was God. He said, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. And Jesus said, you will see greater things done. Truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Why do I bring up this passage? Jesus himself is the latter. He fulfilled, I believe, the dream of Jacob. Jesus himself was the latter and is saying, you are seeing heaven coming down through me into this land in which you now live. Now, I know I'm traversing the Bible very quickly. Hang with me, and I'll try and connect the dots for you. Inheritance promise, that's land. As Jacob was leaving his inheritance, God gave him a revelation that the land was the place of his very presence. God came to earth to become the ladder of Jacob's dream, the access, if you will, to the inheritance. And when we put faith in the ladder, we get a taste of our inheritance before we we ourselves get to heaven. That's the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. And with all of that background, you ask, what is the inheritance in which we received? Well, I believe the inheritance we one day look forward to is God himself. Numbers 18.20 says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. 
Psalm 16, 5 and 6, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Now, I believe God himself is our inheritance, but more specifically, I believe that the inheritance is the full weight and manifest presence of God himself. So to, the answer, to, to answer the question from a few weeks ago, do you know what actual prosperity gospel looks like? I don't believe that our inheritance is riches on this earth. I believe prosperity gospel is that you will inherit God himself. That is true wealth. Now, I know some perhaps are getting cantankerous that I'm trying to rob you of your earthly treasures, taking away your future named and claimed earthly possessions. But, 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 I know there's verses. God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. 3 John 2. But beloved, I want you to hear some more of the word of God this morning. Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has the abundance does his life consist of his possessions. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Keep your life free from the love of money. Mark 4.19 in the parable of a sower speaks of the deceitfulness of the riches which choked out that seed. How many receive the good word of God and they beget choked out by the deceitfulness of riches, the prosperity gospel. Just going after a little bit more. It's a little bit of truth mixed in with a little bit of thorns. Chokes you out. You know, you have a prosperity in heaven. You have an inheritance in Christ Jesus. What does Jesus inherit? Be bold. You know the answer. Jesus inherits all things. Revelation 21.7 You're rich in heaven! But you're not in heaven yet. You're co-heirs with Christ. You get to inherit all of the things that Christ gets inherit. I don't want you to ever forget your riches in heaven. It's coming. It's so amazing. It's wonderful. But we need to be patient and keep our eyes on the Father. Now, you certainly may have wealth according to the eyes of the world this side of eternity. And what you do have definitely comes from God the Father. He's the giver of everything. But if your goal or your focus is wealth, then your goal is not a spiritual goal. And listen carefully. I want everyone to know this. Wealth is never, ever proof of God's love for you. There are some evil, wicked, rich men. And there are some absolutely poverty-stricken men that are after God's own heart. You know what is an indication of his love for you? He gave you his spirit, a taste of his very presence, a foretaste of heaven, and you get to take it everywhere you go. Whatever you picture of heaven, just want to imagine with me for a minute. Whatever you envision heaven to be, it's going to be great, isn't it? There's going to be an endless buffet. And when I mean endless, I mean eternity endless buffet. I'm just going to be eaten and eaten, and eaten, and I'm going to have an eternal metabolism in my glorified body. 
I'm not even going to gain an ounce of weight. Mm. Do you know how good that is in my mind? The, I am. However good, whatever you picture in heaven, God wants you to know that you have a taste of heaven right now in the Holy Spirit. How many times do we take the Holy Spirit for granted? God himself put a piece of the inheritance of himself within your bodies. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, church, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, Ephesians 1.18. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? That we would be in God's presence and he would be in ours. That's why the Holy Spirit is a taste of our inheritance. It's as if we are currently sharing in the presence of God, but it's going to be more fully realized on the other side, glory. Ephesians 1.14 says, I with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. I want you to know that we have riches for us in heaven that are far greater than you can imagine. And that wonderful gift of God's own spirit is a down payment, a deposit, an earnest, a reminder that you are His possession and that you have been bought with a price. And for that, we must stop and give Him praise for His glorious plan. God is good. And he didn't just love you. He didn't just give you his son. He gave you his presence in the form of the Holy Spirit as a reminder of what is to come.